I met my best friend Anne in 1985. And the Babysitter's Club kept her friendship alive. Then Emily was born in 1988. And she said, Thanks, Aunt Esme. These books are great. Now we're all grown up and we're living our dreams. As a writer and a scholar and an expert on teens. And we're gonna start again from the very first book because we're stuck. Stony Brook. Welcome to Stuck in Stony Brook, a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Today we're discussing book 43, Stacy's Emergency. What a build up to this. Uh, yeah, it's been like 20 books that she's been getting sick. So, right? mm-hmm. so many books. So yeah. tired. So pale. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Okay. It's probably unfortunate that I'm going first for one sentence summaries because as usual, mine is less than descriptive. I, I mean, it's it's less bad than some less undescriptive, indescriptive than others. <laughs> Lay it on us. Stacy's parents do a terrible job of being divorced while their only child is literally so ill she's hospitalized. Yeah. Her parents did kind of suck. <laughs> I feel like that's very descriptive. I am furious yeah. with the McGill's. They are being so selfish in this book. I was like, irate. (laughs) Honestly, though. Honestly, such bad parent behavior. Yeah, I didn't even mention them because I I was over it. So mine is Stacy gets hospitalized and Charlotte develops illness anxiety disorder. Mm. I enjoyed Charlotte's portion of the book. Yeah, (laughs) we'll get into it in my section, as you will not be surprised. Um, So my summary is more a commentary. I can't believe Stacy chose chocolate and fudge over root bar- barrels, and there was no white chocolate. Anyway. Yep. What the hell? It was not in keeping with what we know about Stacy's uh, longings for sweets. Her sweet. fantasy, yeah. her candy <laughs> fantasy. This was her chance, and she, I mean, man. Right, except it was mostly cheating of opportunity, right? She didn't actually purchase or did she? She got a she got a candy bar at school, I think. One. Yeah, time. but like, what school like candy like option yeah. is white chocolate? I feel like I've never seen that exactly. In school. Yeah, they're not going to have white chocolate or root beer barrels at school, and the rest of the time she's just like stealing things. She did Claudia get. She did get M and M somewhere that was not That's stolen. True. Did she get M M&M? and the chocolate bar? Well, she ate M and M's like I think on the train. Mm, yeah. Um, and she did have that chocolate bar stashed away in her room. Right. So. Right. But then the fudge and the ring ding were just crimes of opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. I was waiting for white chocolate the whole book. Like, this is your chance, McGill. And no, <laughs> nothing. Never arrived. I know. I just stopped reading after that point. So <laughs> just so you guys. Buckle know. up, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, wait, you guys, we should probably back up and tell you about the members of the podcast. I'm Manny Chikala, a freelance writer. I'm a mischievous pragmatist with a sweet tooth. I'm Emily Crandall, a feminist scholar. I'm a total individual and I like health food. Oh, very nice. Nailed it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, boom. I'm Esme Schaller, an adolescent psychologist. I'm kind of bossy, but I have a big heart. If you want to learn more about the three of us and how we know each other, you can check out our prologue episode. Also, please rate and review us. It really helps people find the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or commentary about anything BSC related, you can drop us a line at stuckinstonybrook at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon and come hang out, chit chat with all of our other patrons, listen to our fabulous bonus content. That's at patreon.com slash stuckinstonybrook. So there's a lot of psychology in this book. Yeah. Before, <laughs> before I dive into it, 
Um, do we want to give any? I mean, I think our one sentence summary has sort of covered it. Yeah. I, I mean, as far as plot goes, this is a pretty sparse book. It's all concentrated around Stacy's illness, right? Like mm-hmm. she's mad at her parents, I think is a kind of subplot, but intertwined plot, right? She's mm-hmm. already mad at them before she's sick. She was thinking about not wanting to go to New York, not only because she doesn't feel good, but because she's pissed about her parent, how her parents have been kind of putting her in the middle of their shit. And then She's like, well, I feel bad. I'm going to go anyway. And then she gets to New York and her dad's like, you look like shit. Let's go to the hospital. She's also stealing. She starts stealing candy. What? (laughs) No, I'm very curious about the stealing candy thing. Yeah. Like, I feel like that belongs in Esme's psychology section. Yeah. I mean, she's like, she, her, so her her internal narration is like, I'm way hungrier than usual. I'm more tired than usual. I'm more thirsty than usual. And like she's so ravenous that at BSC meetings when there's, you know, candy abounds, she's like, I'm just going to take a little bit of this. And I don't know. Yeah, I'm curious whether we think she's like not telling her parents because she's mad at them for something else or whether like that's just kind of how that would work at this age in general with someone Mm -hmm. managing that kind of illness. I think probably both are true, but it is interesting that like she's very secretive about it. and. Even when, like, she doesn't ever tell her mom until the very end after Mm -hmm. they've already rebalanced and readjusted her insulin. And her mom's like, the doctor said it wasn't your diet. Like, this is a bigger issue. I'm sure sneaking the candy didn't help. But, like, you were already sick before Mm -hmm. you started sneaking Mm -hmm. candy. Yeah. I actually thought this book, because she she waited. It was, like, the third to last page or something where she admits to her mom. Yeah. And I thought it was going to go the way where, like, Dawn didn't admit to scaring Marianne. Right. I was like, is she just not going to say it? Is she going to get away with this? Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, diabetes noncompliance is is a huge issue with kids and particularly with teens. Um, and it's uh, it's very well studied. And it's a it, and this is the most common age that it's a problem, like 13, 14, sometimes starting as early as 12. So usually kids are often diagnosed earlier than Stacy was right, depending on their course of illness. Um, and they often are starting to take on more of the role. Uh, first of all, obviously now things are much better, right? I'm not a diabetes expert, but most people who have diabetes don't have to have no sweets at all anymore in 2020, 2021. That is not, that is no longer a thing for the vast majority of people who are diabetic. But this is the first book where she explains why that is the case that she doesn't eat sweets and does insulin, right? Because she says Mm -hmm. that she's a brittle diabetic, which is a special Mm -hmm. kind of diabetes that is extra difficult to manage, Mm -hmm. which like, is that even still a designation that's used? I don't, I have no idea, but uh, I don't know that. Mm-hmm. I didn't look into that for this. I did talk a little bit to um, a friend of mine who is a diabetes research psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've also just seen a lot over the years, kids that I've worked with that have happened to, you know, working with them for other reasons, but they've happened to also have type one diabetes. Right. And it's like recognized as a developmental stage of, you know, not, not following the recommendations, mm-hmm. whether that's messing with diet, whether that's not adequately adjusting your pump or adjusting your injections, depending on your particular regimen. And it makes sense, right? If you're thinking about like early adolescence, sort of taking on more responsibility, but also maybe not really be ready for being ready for it. Also being tired of Mm -hmm. your parents being in charge of things and kind of getting a little bit more into the, I don't know, existential philosophical fact that this isn't fair. It's not your fault Mm -hmm. and you still have to deal with it. Right. Um, you didn't cause all your problems and you have to solve them anyway. And that's a truism for everybody in this world, but it really sucks when you have a chronic illness. Yeah. Um, and so I think that 
developmentally, it makes a lot of sense and that Stacy's been kind of hyper compliant until now, which is sort of amazing because we also know that Stacy has a little bit of a rebellious streak, right? If we think back to California girls, she likes to go to the beach with the older kids and likes to do the sensation seeking with the surfing. And so I'm not surprised that she would give it a shot and mess with her diet in that way. But I don't think Anna Martin really makes the connection so strongly with how mad she is at her parents and the cheating on her diet. I think there's that connection with other things and with her trying to talk to them about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I thought that that thread was sort of more maybe implied. But do you think that is those are potentially related? Like that was sort of what I was thinking about, right? That like Mm -hmm. she's not wanting to talk to her parents about this thing that's kind of eating at her emotionally. And and also she's not talking about her parents to the uh, talking with her parents about the things that she's eating. Like that's kind Mm -hmm. of like overly cutesy way of of casting the the overlap or the thread. But I like, to me, that seemed like it would be really related, but yeah. I don't well, know. and I, I, I think so, but I also, I think also we have other evidence that she's tried to address their abysmal divorce behavior previously, also in California girls, right? She writes, or, oh, sorry. And back in Island adventure when her dad's mad, yeah, that's that she true. wants to go back early and mm-hmm. she's saying, look, it's hard to be a divorced kid and you guys can't put me in the middle. And they're still doing it, only worse, mm-hmm. you know. So that's also really frustrating. So yeah. I, I, it's almost, you know, behaviorally speaking, her ability to talk to them about important things is getting extinguished, right? Mm-hmm. She's not, she's trying to bring it up and they're saying, yeah, yeah, but they're not actually changing their behavior. Mm-hmm. So if I was Stacy, I'd be starting to give up too. Yeah. She's had a number of serious parentified talks with them about this Kind of class of behavior previously. Mm-hmm. What's up, Anne? <laughs> <laughs> Anne just made a good face. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I can jump into some other stuff. One one thing that I did a little bit of a dive into. This is the first book in which anybody mentions the concept of self esteem. So is that true? Stacey, is yeah. The time, huh? The, that that phrase has not been used before. Um, so this is in chapter two when she's describing the girls. And Stacy says, Claudia is fun, funny, generous, and talented. I just wish she had higher self-esteem. And she leaves that there. And then she says, talk about self-esteem. Christy Thomas has it. Um, and, and, and talks about how Christy's been through some difficult things, but she has a lot of self-esteem. And I thought it was funny that it hadn't come up before because it was a very big topic in the 80s and 90s in psychology. So I didn't um, attempt to summarize the work. I just did a quick kind of journal sweep. So between 1980 and 1989, only looking at peer-reviewed journals in psychology, um, if I looked up child and self-esteem, uh, there were 1,200 studies. Holy shit. In that decade. <laughs> yeah. That's really um, interesting. Some of them are on really specific subpopulations, right? Like dyslexia and self-esteem or things like that. But it's um, the, our, our biggest measures of self-esteem were developed during that time. And um, people got really, really obsessed with it. And that's part of the reason that we get things like we were talking about last week with the pet show and, you know, everybody gets a trophy is people got concerned that there were many things that could harm self-esteem. And so we started looking at that as a culture, but also psychologists were really just trying to quantify it. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you like think without, without doing any Googling, how do you both define self-esteem? Do you have a thought about its definition or how you think about it? I mean, I study the history of Western thought. It, it is very prominent there as a concept that like largely emerges in 
sort of the Enlightenment period and relates to kind of establishing the individual as the center, both of moral and political concern and kind of it has like deep roots in sort of early capitalist thinking. And there's a big then the wave of criticism of it that kind of comes after. Um, so I think like philosophically, it's been uh, uh, certainly a terrain of debate in, in the Western tradition. But like, I don't have a good definition of like, what I would what I would personally consider it to be. <laughs> I think like how I think of it is fraught with all this like mm-hmm. um, lenses or frameworks. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't study any of that, <laughs> so I don't have that messing up my thought process. Yeah, um, messing up. Yeah. <laughs> um, totally messed up. I don't. I've never thought about defining self-esteem, but for me personally, it would probably be not an excess or overabundance of confidence, but like a like more like your like a self-assuredness of mm-hmm. you know, it's like not thinking. Because you can still think, feel bad about yourself and still have good self-esteem. Um, mm-hmm. I feel in instances, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and having too much confidence would also be a problem, I feel. Right. It's not, it's so, not designed to be overconfident. Right. Yeah. So just like, to me, I mean, like an inner, like, for me, it's like feeling grounded in who you are and knowing who you are mm-hmm. um, and being able to make decisions based on that and feeling good about it. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. I think the the really tricky there isn't one definition of self esteem in psychology. I think because it's really tr- it's slippery for the reasons that you both said actually right. So when I went into Psych Info, which is our largest database of all the psychology journals, the earliest mention I found of children in self esteem was from an 1854 phrenology textbook. Yikes! <laughs> telling telling which bumps on the head are related to self esteem in children. And then the next Which, one after that, as many of our listeners may know, but some may not, is like a precursor to eugenics. <laughs> oh, yes. As a science. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, they're, I don't know if precursors even, right? They were just overlap. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or different um, branches and, of the same science, maybe. <laughs> yeah. With science and scare quotes. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, and the next one was in 1890, and it was your old buddy, John Locke, Emily. So he was publishing in some education and psychology journals um, an article called Some Thoughts Concerning Education um, that was about a little bit about children's self-esteem. And I thought this quote was very funny because it was about how you should regard your own children. So the the familiarity of parents with their children should increase with the age and merits of the child. Um, That is an aid to his education. And then trust in money, manners, and business promotes the child's self-esteem and love towards his father. So you can see this overlap that Emily was talking about. Well, I mean, also Locke wrote thousands of pages on education and like, I mean, so a lot of people attribute the the tabula rasa idea to Locke, but there's Mm. also a ton of textual evidence that like, he doesn't really believe we're born a clean slate, that like, like education is important for raising the appropriate kinds of citizens who can engage in the sort of public deliberation that he thought was crucial for the kind of, you know, capitalist democracy as we would call it now mm. that he advocated for but the, also like the kind of tension there is that we're all born free and equal with ra- capacity for rationality and yet this like rigorous educational program is required to kind of cultivate mm-hmm. that rationality so like which is it are we born with yeah. it or not and like what is what does it mean to be reasonable and what do you what are 
what are the criteria by which we adjudicate who's reasonable by nature and who's thus deserving of this education and who's not, right? So that right. Like, that self-esteem is kind of a metric that's uh, important to how he thought education and reason and thus freedom were intertwined is like, I think, very revealing for, for mm-hmm. like, yeah. Anyway. Totally. So when we tried to define it, define it more scientifically, um, the 80s, we, we went pretty far, but the trick was that a lot of people, especially people working with children, both teachers and people like psychologists, social workers working more clinically, wanted to just sort of like inject children with self-esteem. <laughs> I, I don't mean that literally, but just like add it like, yeah, <laughs> like, like, let's make the self-esteem higher, like with the idea that that's better for everybody, but without some sort of acknowledgement of the, the process of it. Um, and the idea really one idea that is clear is that self-esteem is built through mastery and thus you can have self-esteem in different areas and not in other areas. Right. Which is why I sort of found it surprising. Not really. Right. Cause this is a 13 year old describing her best friend. I don't think of Claudia as someone who has low self-esteem. Right. I think of Claudia who has specific areas of self-esteem that are quite high. I think that she, you know, knows that she's a good friend. I think she knows she's a good daughter most of the time. I think she knows she's a good artist. She knows she's a good babysitter. Um, it's domain specific, right? Mm-hmm. You're muted, in. <laughs> Classic. I was saying she's very. She has a lot of self esteem in her long black hair and almond shaped eyes. That too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and less so in school. So this idea that there's a a general like that we each have like a set point of self esteem across all domains in life is not a good one, right? And not the way that we look at self-esteem in psychology now, but it was sort of one of the kind of through lines in a lot of 1980s psychology was trying to figure out how to build self-esteem more generally as if it's sort of trans domain and doesn't have to do with specific behaviors and specific abilities. Hmm. This And this idea of like your faith that you said, Anne, like your faith in yourself that you can do things that you need to do, I think was sort of what you said, is definitely how we look at it now. And so oftentimes parents will come to me, their kid is clinically depressed or has another, you know, clinical issue that they want help with. And they're like, I just, if she just had higher self-esteem, this would be better. And that's not, we don't have any treatment that can just like turn the self-esteem dial up. You have to actually with a kid with depression, for for instance, you have to get them moving again. You have to get them trying things and like, you know, on a sports team or doing some art and seeing that they can do those things and building over time in any particular area, whether it's socially, whether it's with their own ability to control their thoughts, whether it's academically. Um, and so that's just kind of a big shift we saw. So I thought it was it was telling of the times that Stacy sort of describes Christy and Claudia in this global way, as opposed to mm-hmm. more domain specifically when it comes to self-esteem. It is interesting, though, that the language of mastery is part of the like more contemporary psychological lacuna, because that's also deeply lacking in that sense, right? That yeah. like part of individualism is this like mastery like we are Mm -hmm. we are rational creatures insofar as we can master the earth right and so our relationship Mm -hmm. between the relationship between human nature is one of mastery over rather than like oh yeah like i think we mean it differently on mm. the psychology side i think i'm just saying Locke is still with us you know and how i basic words i believe it in a a way (laughs) that i do not condone and i do not think is good (laughs) if that was unclear Um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think that um, it's really about 
back to Anne's point, I mean, Anne, Anne, without, you know, you're like, you, like she said, without all those Western thinkers messing up her thought processes, she, she, I think it's good to have a criticism of the way that things have been (laughs) rendered. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that it's being able to predict your own behavior and your ability to handle different things. Right. And Mm -hmm. so mastery in the sense of, you know, are, are you learning? Are you moving forward? And can you try something and see yourself get better at it over time? Mm. I think, um, is, is more mastery without a specific end point, just with the idea that you're building mastery as you move along in your life. Question. So you can have false self-esteem too. Mm -hmm. Then if you're like, you think you're good at something. Absolutely. But you're really not. Yeah. But then is there a difference to the person if it's false or true um sort of depends i mean it depends on that person's learning history right like Mm -hmm. how aware are they that it's false Mm -hmm. like do they get a bunch of punishment for thinking that they're good and then they're not or do people um sort of snowplow around them and let them continue to think that they're great Mm -hmm. like happens to a lot of really rich people capitalism again um (laughs) then they may not get that disconfirmed right right it may continue to be there i think Mm -hmm. that the the other thing, the other reason that self-esteem is so slippery, which sort of comes up to me here, is that uh, expressing it appropriately differs by culture, of course. Right. right. And so, you know, if you look at sort of our classic American individualist thing, you should walk into a room super confidently. If you do that in Japan, say people will think that you're a dick. Like you need to be looking around the room and making everybody else feel comfortable, not showing that you like own the room and that you're really comfortable. Right. And ownership so, again. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, collectivist versus individualist cultures um, express it and define it a little differently. And I think it wasn't until the 90s and even the early 2000s in kind of the wider literature in psychology that we're like, oh, right. No, everybody's not, um, you know, Western American white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a, a broader concept. So I just thought it was interesting that Anna and Martin brought it up and that it was, you know, in here because it's not something they've really talked about before. They're usually more descriptive about each other. And so I thought, and Stacy as the sort of parentified, sophisticated person, I thought it was funny that she would like use sort of a term like that. It sounds like an adult describing a kid as opposed to a kid describing her friends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. Interesting. What else? So that was one thing I talked about. Um, I also was really interested in Charlotte's little journey. Can one of you talk a little bit about what happened to Charlotte while Stacy was in the hospital? Well, I mean, she became a hypochondriac. <laughs> say say more. What are some of the diseases that she had while the other babysitters were taking care um, of her? She has uh, Lyme disease, kidney disease. She gets arthritis. Arthritis. Um, she has pinched something, nerve. A pinched nerve in her spine. She has. Oh God, I forget. There's a lot. That was actually one of my favorite lines. Was when Charlotte goes, "I probably have Lyme disease." <laughs> yeah, so good. I mean, all of Charlotte's yeah. lines correcting the babysitters about like the proper medical terms. I thought were really funny. Like, I guess it makes. How old is she supposed to be? Eight, seven. I think eight. 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 They're like. Fourth grade. Even if you're eight and your mom's a doctor, like I, she was a, a little precocious with her hypo, hypochondria, hypochondriacism, hypochondriasm. What what's the yeah. proper well adjective there? Uh, the the 
noun is hypochondriasis. Oh, okay. Um, but it's actually not the proper noun anymore. Okay. So since 2013, when DSM-5, our fifth revision of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders came out, it is called illness anxiety disorder, oh. which is, you know, I, I think less judgmental and a little bit more accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and she basically just dis- does display a lot of the signs, but it was called hypochondriasis at this time. So the babysitters are using the proper terms. Again, we, we find that Anna Martin does seem to consult with psychologists and, and doctors around these kinds of things. And yeah, I just loved it. I thought it was a really nice use of Stacy's relationship with Charlotte. I thought the Johansons handled it well. Um, because it was clearly in response to this crisis of someone who's really important to Charlotte being in the hospital. And it was her way of kind of processing it. It didn't go on more than a couple weeks. So, you know, we've talked a bit with a few different disorders on this program about how we define harmful dysfunction and whether or not um, something interferes with the person's life. Right? I think she was missing some school, but for Charlotte, that's not that big of a deal because she's doing really well in school. And she was clearly really worried about Stacy. You know, the the process of feeling your emotions in your body, somatization, is really common in children. And, you know, so rather than feeling depressed or feeling anxious, having stomach aches, having headaches, having physical symptoms is a very common way for kids to process difficult emotions. And, you know, in this case, we wouldn't actually diagnose her with illness anxiety disorder because it had such a clear onset and then such a clear remission, right? As soon as right. she knew Stacy was okay. Um, but it could have continued. So this is the kind of thing that does start anxiety disorders in kids sometimes is a is a big, you like know, traumatic trauma event of some yeah. kind. Um, and so it might have been that she didn't get better when Stacy got out of the hospital. And then they would have had other things to deal with. But there was also a big boom in studying this in the in the late 80s, early 90s, looking specifically at somatization in children um, and hypochondriasis is what it was called at the time. And that has sort of faded. It's less trendy now in psychology. So there's more work on it now to the extent that it applies to specific populations, like mm-hmm. looking at it in autism or looking at it in people that have life-threatening trauma or things like that. But it was one of the sort of exciting areas um, in that time. Mm-hmm. So again, I think Anna Martin kind of has her finger on the pulse of, you know, I get the impression she had a lot of friends and colleagues that work with children in a lot of different varieties because she had done a lot of work with children herself. And so just kind of knew a lot about these different areas and I, used them to come into the book. I think she thanks at least one doctor yeah. in this book. Claudia not. Werner is yeah. the same person that she thinks in The Truth About Stacy. Oh, okay. Okay. Yep. So that's specifically diabetes, you think? for that i bet so yeah yeah interesting yeah yeah i mean that all rang really true to me like i could totally see the way charlotte's and stacy charlotte and stacy's relationship has been such a center of charlotte's kind of like emotional development and in some mm-hmm. cases um places where she struggled it like seemed in keeping with that those patterns that charlotte would react mm-hmm. that way but it does i i did worry like is this like, is there something else going on here that's going to be bad? But I think mm-hmm. the Johansons seem fairly confident that just like being sympathetic will help. And then like Stacy's better. And so Charlotte's fine. And so that all seemed mm-hmm. fine, I guess. Yeah. I guess in the grand scheme of things, it's like a week and a half long, two weeks. Yeah. Like, how else well, would you handle difference. that? Like, what, what would. Right. It's the difference with how you treat like a current, 
you know, it, it was a reasonable worry. It's not an irrational fear of Charlotte's, right? So Stacy was really sick. She was in the hospital for two weeks, which I don't think would ever happen now, um, our current economic times, but probably was still long for a 13 year old in 1991. And so it makes sense to me that she was really scared and worried yeah. if, you know, and it wouldn't make sense for the Johansons to be like, buck up, kid, it's fine. Just go to school. Like in that situation, yeah. if it was illness, anxiety disorder, and there wasn't a current kind of crisis, Stressor. Yeah. then, you know, that would eventually be the approach, you know? So a lot of times it's, you know, if you don't have a fever and you're not actively throwing up, you got to go to school, you know, because this is what we're doing. It did make me kind of worry about Charlotte's future, just her like anxiety over this. Hmm. I don't know. Cause I was like, okay, like Charlotte's really smart. You know, she's like quote, quote gifted. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like she probably takes a lot of like, has, gets a lot of confidence from knowing things. Mm-hmm. And then like health stuff is something you have no control over. Mm-hmm. So then you try to figure it out, but it's like impossible to, it's like, you don't, mm-hmm. you can't, there's no answer to it really. So mm-hmm. in my head, I was like, oh man, Charlotte's going to have a hard time with some mm-hmm. things in life in my head. Yeah. I mean, maybe. And, and the reason I really like it is because she is only eight. And I think oftentimes with kids that are intellectually gifted, we assume then that the rest of their development is kind of commensurate with that. So I loved that she didn't really have the words to talk about this. And she didn't just say, I'm really worried about Stacy. Can we call her again? I, I loved that she experienced it through this somatic way um, because I thought that was really in keeping with her being eight. And like emotional intelligence is not the same as intellectual mm-hmm. intelligence. Mm-hmm. And I think I thought that was really thoughtfully rendered because mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I have health anxiety, which I remember I've had it since I was a kid, too. Mm. Like, I remember just thinking I had cancer, mm-hmm. but just because, not because at the time I didn't know anyone who had cancer, but I think I learned that it was, that's how people die. Mm. And as soon as I found that out, I was like, wait, do I have cancer? Like, am I going to die? So like, I remember there was like a span of time when I was like, oh God, I felt like a bump. And I was like, that's a gland. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay. Like, I, would, I like literally thought I had tumors. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. And if you, you know. I often say this is this is not science. This is just my clinical experience. But I often say that people, you know, I may have said this on the podcast before people run one direction or another. Right. People run anxious or they run moody or they run angry um, Mm -hmm. and kind of disruptive. And when you're under stress, those things will come out. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, you are a person that runs pretty anxious. And so, like, do you meet criteria for illness, anxiety disorder? No. But when things are stressful, will you go down that road? Sure. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that that's kind of what's going on with Charlotte here. Although I would say that at eight, we don't know that that's where it will necessarily continue to go because it seems very specifically related to the fact that Stacy was having a medical emergency. Right. Right. So, but it does put her at risk for other anxiety disorders later on. Mm-hmm. Like, I think we can safely say that she runs anxious, but we kind of knew that already, I think, from previous books. Mm-hmm. For sure. Anyway, there's psychology for days in this book. I could go on and on, but I'd like to hear about what you had to say, Emily. <laughs> uh, I had a couple little small things in this book. There's a moment when Stacy is in the hospital and it's during the chapter where Claudia sits for Charlotte and they talk to her on the phone. And this is part of when they discover what's going on with Charlotte and the beginning of the chapter, Stacey's narrating or like explaining Claudia's diary entry um, or notebook entry. uh, And it's like Saturday was a day for Claude, blah, blah, blah. I was admitted to the hospital. 
And then she starts going on this kind of like almost sidebar because she corrects right about the food. And she says, uh, cab had taken me and dad to one of New York's finest. However, having been in a number of hospitals, I can tell you that no matter what, the food stinks, makes the food in our cafeteria look and taste like gourmet dishes prepared by a great chef. Wait. Oh, oh, the cafeteria food. Sorry. Uh, yeah. The cafeteria food in comparison to hospital food looks and tastes like gourmet dishes prepared by a great chef of the world. In a hospital nowadays, everything that can be is individually wrapped. A slice of bread in a plastic wrapper, juice in a disposable plastic cup with a foil lid, etc. I would look at my plate after a meal and it would practically be hidden by a pile of plastic and foil and paper. What a waste. That's its own paragraph. Mm-hmm. If one person in one hospital generates this much trash, I thought, after my first quote unquote, factory fresh meal. How can our environment possibly deal with it? How can, oops, I'm way off track. <laughs> like, I'll tell you about the hospital later. And then like goes back to Claudia. And I thought this was so interesting because like, right, we're in the early 90s. So there's, you know, there's been interest in the environment, at least like on the forefront of kind of various kinds of social movements since like the 60s and 70s. But it hasn't really appeared in the books yet much not much if at all we've got a couple little mentions um and it's like it's a pretty detailed like sidebar that she goes down Mm -hmm. and like i I was trying to look at when hospitals started kind of individually wrapping things and that information was really difficult to sort of track down but there's a ton a ton of information that has come out in the last like five years about the like larger environmental impact of hospitals in the united states and it is devastating i mean and, it, and it's like, yeah. you know, you see all these articles written by doctors who ha- have like dual degrees in both medicine and like environmental engineering or something like that. And they see kids who come, you know, with asthma and the parents are like, why do you think it's worse than normal? And these doctors are like, honestly, we're part of the problem. <laughs> like the way we deliver, deliver medical services in the U.S. generates tons of pollution, tons of waste. And like as largely not we're not treating health holistically we're treating it in this kind of um Mm -hmm. you know putting a band-aid on it thing but i saw this stat from 2018 that was just like fucking mind-blowing to me so um this uh pair of researchers in 2018 named matt eckleman and jody sherman uh conducted a huge huge survey of like waste hospital related kind of waste waste and pollution so like waste of all kinds basically in 2018 and they estimated that U.S. hospitals create nearly 7,000 tons of solid waste every day. Uh, healthcare accounts for 10% of greenhouse gas, emission, gas emissions in the U.S., 10% of smog formation, and 9% of other harmful air pollutants, which in turn you know, affects entire ecosystems by the general contribution right. to climate change, but also affects, affects human health outcomes, right? Contributing to cancer, heart attacks, asthma and a host of other shit. They estimated in this study that pollution from healthcare results in the loss of an estimated 714,000 disability-adjusted life years annually, which is more than than the um, loss estimated due to adverse effects of medical treatment. (laughs) Like, by a lot. Like, almost five times as much. And then, what was the other fucking stat that, like, blew my mind? Oh, okay. On average, the... Each single American generates 4.4 pounds of waste per day. The average U.S. hospital in 2018 generated 29 pounds of waste per bed every single day. Oh, my God. So just going to the hospital, it's like seven to eight times what you 
would do on your own at home. Mm -hmm. And that's an average American who doesn't give a shit about being plastic free or whatever else. So that's Mm -hmm. somebody who's already trying, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe doing a lot of waste. Yeah. Jesus. So like what for one hospital, that's more than 50,000 pounds of solid waste, a combination of municipal hazardous, biohazardous, pharmaceutical and radioactive waste, including food waste. Right. So like some hospitals, hospital, a hospital that's producing 30,000 meals will um, use more than 100,000 pounds of food to produce those meals, which is approximately like 35 million BTU of energy to cook and generates 29,000 pounds of food waste per day. Isn't that fucking insane? Yes. We're both Anne and I are just stunned into silence. Yeah. Well, I use a reusable water bottle. (laughs) (laughs) But this is why all that bullshit about like, you know, I mean, yeah, the Better World Shopper is great, right? It's like if you have the luxury and privilege to make good consumer choices, then do it. But that like consumers are not the problem. Like ho- the, a no. single hospital yeah. is not a consumer. It's a fucking institution. Right. It's a, like that is an institutional level, like style of delivering goods and services that is inherently right. wasteful and, and pollutant, polluting, right? Well, so it's and like- it's so- it's so interesting. I've thought, I mean, with a lot of things, right, when the problem is really big, it's easy to get paralyzed in how to solve it, right? Yeah. And I've thought about this with hospitals before. Like, there is some percentage of that that my guess is a small percentage that has to be that in order to be safe, right? Yeah. Like, a you know, a syringe has to be individually packaged in order to keep it sterile, right? Like um, a, a catheter or like any right. yeah. to be sterile. But, but that is a small percentage, actually, of the waste that's coming out of hospitals. But I think that that idea that like hospitals are exceptional because of these reasons, right? Because of infection and sterilization, and therefore Necessity. everything needs to be disposed. Like, I, like I know that. I mean, like I work at a hospital. Like I'm in a just psychiatry department. We're dirty. We don't have a bunch of stuff we throw away. But the rest of the hospital certainly does. Um, you know, UCSF has a huge green initiative. But I think even asking some of these questions is hard to do. You know, it's like such a large thing to change. And I think there's sort of spillover, you know, whatever the opposite of the halo effect is of, you know, well, we really need these clean individually wrapped syringes. So then we also must obviously need an individually wrapped piece of bread. Right. Right. Um, It's like the, the critical thinking about each disposable choice goes away because we're a hospital and we're here to help people. So it's okay. It's worthwhile. I mean, I think it's interesting, too, because a lot of the pollution generated in these studies is about like emissions required to ship in all of the supplies and like Mm -hmm. all this stuff. And I I think it's really less a question of like how sterile do we need hospitals to be and more a question of how are we distributing like health resources in general Mm -hmm. and like that we have it concentrated in these giant hospitals and not like delivering different goods and services in like smaller contexts and more localized Mm -hmm things as part of it, right? Like how are we, tre- are we, do we assume that everything requires like a medicinal kind of response that then come, you know, means mm-hmm. and all whole host of other emissions for delivering these goods and services. I mean, I think there's like a, and like, right. The, the, the impact that the pharmaceutical lobby has on the way that we structure healthcare and the fact that like, you know, good access to it is not equitably distributed. And like all of these things are obviously factors, right. And that like to think mm-hmm. about you know, the the social justice dynamic of access to good care as also having a like deeply crucial environmental component is, I think, like a, a really important overlap that these movements need to like embrace. But 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 then again, it makes the problem seem 
so much bigger and and so much mm-hmm. more complicated and like harder to untangle. But they're all relevant factors, right? And like something mm-hmm. like a question about how we treat some that that a question about how we treat something would have an environmental component to it, or that we ought to think about the environmental impact of that. As I I think not a way that we're accustomed to thinking about healthcare and issues with mm-hmm. justice even around or or equity around healthcare. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really interesting that uh this like that this first kind of en- environmental interlude that we really have in the BSC is like so detailed and so like spot on and in in some way like mm-hmm. prescient, right? That like mm-hmm. and that Stacy's like, oh this problem is too big. I I have to interrupt myself before I get too sidetracked from my point. Mm-hmm. Really, really underscores for me like the way when I teach environmental political theory and this is never my intention but it inevitably happens my students are like it's too big and I'm like well that's not mm-hmm. that's like that's not why I'm giving you these thinkers to read like the, mm-hmm. the the goal is not throw up your hands the goal is like let's think about what actually how our world really looks and like in what ways in what ways certain systems like generate certain outcomes and like how those systems are all related to one another and to like have a grasp on exactly what is it that's going on, not to say like, it's too big. (laughs) Right. But honestly, that comes back to self-esteem like that as a psychologist, (laughs) that doesn't surprise me at all. No, honestly, though, because like, yeah, how, how, like I, you know, so I'm an individual per, you know, like I know Anne was being quippy, but you know, Anne's got her reusable water bottle. Um, like how is she supposed to have an impact on hospital waste? Right. Like, right. how are we, like, we as individuals, like, humans were not, like, evolutionarily speaking, these, like, giant industrial societies we have are very new. Sure. Um, and our brains didn't evolve to understand any of that. And I don't have any confidence that I can make an impact on that. So I think there's a difference between understanding working. how it works and then thinking that you ought to, as an individual, have an impact on it, right? Like you can think that it's Mm -hmm. a difficult and thorny problem and still not be committed to the idea that like I, as an individual, need to have an impact on this, right? Like I think that's the, Mm -hmm. and that's the strength of like kind of leftist thinking is that like actually individual solutions to these problems are not only kind of hopelessly romantic and like recommit you to the individual individualist (laughs) concepts that, you know, foregrounded this problem in the first place, but that they're like counterproductive because they negate the importance of collective solutions. Right. And Mm -hmm. like, so I I think that's like why reading the radicals is so important and why it helps you get out of that, like kind of myopic in a sense, like Mm -hmm. frame of like, I, like what kind of impact can I have? And it's like, well, that's not the point. Like that's just, that's just the same society over again, but with like slightly different principles, like oriented towards slightly different principles. So I don't know, but I think, I think that that's telling, right. That like the problem's so big that she's like, wait, I can't go down this road or like, I'm going to get distracted from my, my formulaic uh, BSC, you know, right. (laughs) Like I got to tell you literature. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I think in that sense, it's kind of well done. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that was a long aside there. <laughs> Just like Stacy's. <laughs> Did you want to say something, Anne? No, I was waiting to get to cook who got a nose job. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay, so the one other like thing, social justice thing, um, is that, so Esme sent me a text like five days ago before I read the book saying, um, Stace quotes Fannie Lou Hammer in this book. And so I get to the point in kind of chapter three where she's like, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I was like, oh, okay. She's like foregrounding the Fannie Lou Hammer reference. And then she never quotes her. (laughs) It's not a quote and it's not attributed to Fannie Lou Hammer. Like I appreciate the the refrain, but I also think in this context, it's perhaps not 
used in a way that does <laughs> due diligence to Fannie Lee Hammer's legacy as a as a like very <laughs> prominent and important and like a uh, civil rights activist who has a horrific you know horrific stories uh, around her treatment by the police her attempt to like reclaim her voting rights she ran for congress or um yeah, American Congress, and she ran for Congress or state Congress legislature in Mississippi, and like had a hand in forming all these super radical movements. And like her fam- famous speech entitled "I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired." I'll, I don't know if she titled it that. It's been titled that in her wake, but like that refrain is about the like exhaustion and lethargy that comes with agitating for rights that are given in name but not delivered in practice, and like that gap, right? That kind of like collective psychological gap i guess for lack of a better word or emotional gap between like having something recognized on paper and not being not being able to claim it or have access to it and and not even just not being able to but being violently prevented from access to it at every turn is i think the the sick and tired of sick and tired like mm-hmm. speaks to that collective struggle I, I mean i totally understand especially what you were talking about like in terms of like teenage diabetes noncompliance and that like that that unfairness right like i didn't do this and it's still happening to me mm-hmm. um so, and i think that like in part that's what Fannie Lou Hammer is saying right in her mm-hmm. in her refrain but I I don't know that's entirely appropriate for Stacy as like a white girl in Connecticut to to borrow that language to talk about her diabetes I'm willing to be convinced otherwise but my first my first thought was that like she was going to reference that <laughs> at some point like I was like oh she's writing a social studies essay maybe it's about Fannie Lou Hammer and I was like oh no no it's just this one unattributed no, quote cool I led yeah. you astray <laughs> you led me astray I sort of, <laughs> I sort of meant I, I guess I was thinking of quote in the sense that like, you know, when Charlie Parker plays a solo, he might play a little bit of a Louis Armstrong song. Oh, you want to go jazz? Is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so quote in that way, it's quote in that way. It was just woven into the jazz of Anna Martin's. We'll do like a double cultural uh-huh. appropriation. Okay. <laughs> cool. Just All right. So we're on the same page, maybe. <laughs> I just I thought it was a I thought it was an interesting little wink and I thought you would be excited to see it there. That's all. But no, she does not have a social studies paper. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's an appropriate wink, but I'm yeah. I'm willing to be convinced otherwise. On that note, did you guys notice that Stacey does not describe Jesse as black in this book? I did. She mm-hmm. describes her as yes. having what cocoa colored skin. Cocoa like colored skin. Clear mm-hmm. she's describing a black a black person. person. Yeah, but she does not say the main difference between Mal and Jesse is that <laughs> Jesse is black and Mal is white. <laughs> like <laughs> which I thought was interesting. Yep. yep. I wrote it down too. I was like, wait, describes Jesse but doesn't say black. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's uh, interesting. When was Jesse first introduced? What year? Eighty seven. Seven or early eight. Yeah. Yeah. It's just interesting. It'd be interesting to go back and see what's happening in like culture and media um, to maybe Anna Martin's like, oh, like I shouldn't probably be two doves. Jesse's black, you know, Mm -hmm. like maybe starting to think of other ways to describe her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. What year year did a a different role come out out of curiosity? (laughs) Wait, really? Yeah. 87. 87. I think we've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, you know, are you talking about Anne because she doesn't, other than sometimes the Mal is white and Jesse's black, she doesn't call all of the rest of the babysitters white. Mm-hmm. She just says, Claudia's Japanese-American, Jesse's black. 
Um, right. other than she specifies that Mal is white usually, mm-hmm. and that maybe she's trying to get away from that. I think the better way to do that would be to call everybody who's white white. Mm-hmm. Um, Milky so. skin. Mm-hmm. color of pale milk pale pale skin <laughs> translucent veins um yeah anyway i don't have anything smart to say about that but i thought that was a very interesting more importantly koki mason got a nose job yes yeah what the fuck yeah that was a very interesting like detail that was just yeah. kind of like put in there and you can always tell says christy <laughs> Yeah, right, Christy. It just makes me think of, like, what did she look like before? Well, it's so funny. Wait, so so the girls are telling Stacey they visit her in the hospital twice in two days, by the way, which, like... They're very dedicated. Okay. Mm-hmm. But would they... I don't know. that Their parents would really let them do that by themselves. That seems, like, unlikely to me. But so Alan Gray did something, and Stacey's, like, gross. And then somebody says, and Koki got a nose job. What? I cried. You're kidding. Nope. That's why she's been absent. So what does she look like? Like she got a nose job, said Christy. You can always tell. And then Stacy says, that's funny. You never noticed my job, my nose job. And then Christy's like, you got a nose job? And then she's like, I'm kidding. And then they all laughed so loudly. She was afraid a nurse was going to come and kick them out. Like, what the fuck? It's all so weird. <laughs> so I think this is clearly meant to, you know, this is another good girls, bad girls thing. Mm-hmm. This is a signifier that Koki's like a bad, vain, rich mm-hmm. individual. But I wonder, you know, there's there's always jokes in like 80s and 90s sitcoms and stuff about like the person that got a nose job, like, oh, I had a deviated septum, you know, or whatever. Like, but what if mm-hmm. Koki really did have some medical reason that she needed to get a nose job? Well, it's yeah, like 13 is really young to get a nose job. Right? Your nose grows your whole life. Exactly. I mean, it's usually <laughs> like a high school graduation <laughs> present, I feel. Yeah. <laughs> usually. Yeah, your nose and your ears grow your whole life. Yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what to do with that. I love I love Anne just said it's usually a high school graduation present, as if it is a very common high school graduation present. I mean, it is like in class American media. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She had a deviated yeah. septum. Yeah. yeah. I mean, who doesn't? Come on. Okay, and the very, very last thing about this book that has nothing to do with my usual stuff is that um, Marianne reads Five Little Peppers. No, I think Marianne. Reads Five Little Peppers and How They Grew to Charlotte, mm-hmm. which I had completely forgotten about. That was one of my favorite books growing up. And I, the day that we had our anniversary episode and people asked us questions about like formative books, I like had f- completely forgotten that that book existed until this book. And I was like, <gasps> instantly transported to reading that again. I haven't so read it I don't, in ages. I don't but. know this book. What is, is it about Five Little Peppers and How They Grow? It's about a family, like the their pepper is their name. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I honestly have zero memories of this book, except that I remember like really small details of it. And I remember the physical book that I read. It was like an old hardcover book that didn't have like illustrations or anything on it. And the pages were falling out. And it's like, I, I think it's meant to be a kind of immigrant story in some sense, or I don't know, there's some kind of like social commentary being had about like the the society in which the peppers are growing up but i would have to sure. read it to see like what what the politics of it were are you saying sure yeah because obviously child emily would be reading this book that has all this social commentary political pieces it, it does all all books do first of all <laughs> have you not watched 
Ted Lasso and the the centrality of A Wrinkle in Time to yes, Roy yes. Kent's oh journey gosh. into leadership. Like, oh shut God. the fuck up. So good. Don't even. I, careful, we'll turn this into a Ted Lasso podcast. <laughs> I'm like one minute away. Love it so much. I love it so hard. All right. Yeah. No, I'm just teasing you. It was funny. It was a funny thing for you to say. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was my mom's book that I like never cracked and that Emily, like a good granddaughter, read. Devoured. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Anne, take it away. Take it away from me specifically. Um, From both of us. This is really academic. Let's shake it (laughs) up. Well, first, were either of you disappointed that there was no ambulance in this book? Because I feel like emergency to me was like, oh, Stacey is going to get put into an ambulance with like sirens and stuff but it was just really her dad taking her to the hospital Mm. i can't say that i was disappointed by that (laughs) yeah i was a little disappointed so a couple things uh sign of the dove was Mm -hmm. a real restaurant i'd never heard of it but it was on the upper east side and it was like very 80s fancy oh sun-dried tomatoes on everything yeah, I mean, yeah. You, can, you can Google it and like look it up and see what it looked like. It did not, it looks pretty awful, but in the <laughs> 80s, it was probably very cool and romantic. Um, but it was, you know, like Jackie O threw a party there. Uh, it's very, I think probably like fancy in the way that Tavern on the Green was like fancy. Mm, mm-hmm. But it was like, it was like a place to go. It was like a place where people had power lunches and, you know, romantic Valentine's Day dinners. <laughs> it is a real place. Um, second, Stacy was, remember when she went to visit her dad where the emergency happened, she was really thirsty mm-hmm. and she was drinking the water in the right. bathroom. On like the Metro North. And I was so disgusted by that. I was like, oh, like... Poor Stacey. That's how thirsty she is. That's how thir- I was like, yeah, but it made me realize like how thirsty she was. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. those faucets are like, they're not even like real faucets. They're just yeah. like push down kind. I know. I spent a long a time, a lot of time in the Long Island Railroad, which is not too dissimilar. And yeah, trying to drink that water would be really upsetting. I know. But she did wash her hands, you know, but ugh, gross. So wait, sorry, you don't have any sign of the dub food though. Do you have any like example menu items for us? I did find something, it, but this is a menu from 1997, though. Mm. So, but I can still say a couple of things. Yeah. Um, Free form lobster and shrimp lasagna. What? Oh. What does that mean? That means just a pile of fish and noodles. Crispy <laughs> sweetbreads with escargot. Mm-hmm. Uh, dessert menu: gingerbread with orange Bavarian cream. Uh, lemon Napoleon chocolate souffle cake, tropical fruit sundae, which mm. was pineapple upside down cake, coconut caramel ice cream. So you get the idea. It's yeah. like it doesn't sound yeah. that great. Um, grilled tuna with steamed Asian vegetables. Mm. <laughs> uh, sauteed Long Island duck breast. Ah. Uh, vegetarian's plate. What's wow. that? Uh, Yukon gold potatoes stuffed with artichoke puree and truffles, grilled portobellos, and a vegetable ragu. Weird. No one wants to eat that. <laughs> no, no vegetarian. No vegetarian wants to eat that at all. <laughs> um, okay, so what I was trying to do today was 
find a little history about the cootie catcher because I feel like Mallory and Jesse are often playing with one at the BSC meetings. Mm-hmm. But as it turns out, there is no real history of the cootie catcher. Yeah. However, I was able to find some facts about different things about the cootie catcher. So I'll go into those. So there is no, as predicted, no exact um, origin of the cootie catcher. But um, people do assume that it was the actual construction of it was in Japan just because Mm. of origami, but that is Mm -hmm. unfounded. Mm. (laughs) Um, So, but in the 1928 book called Fun with Paper Folding, uh, it had the instructions to make a salt cellar, which is basically the cootie catcher. Mm. Um, But what it basically was, you turned it upside down. So the pointy Mm -hmm. sides were the legs and you could put salt into those little pockets and you could also pour salt out of them. But that term and use originated in Britain. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was very British. Uh, But in America, the U.S., it evolved to be called the cootie catcher. And that happened in the 1950s and 1960s. Interesting. I was surprised they called it a cootie catcher because that's what we called it growing up. And I just assumed that it would be more regional. So I was surprised that the Connecticut called it that. Right. Um, There's a lot of different people call it a lot of different things in different countries. But Mm -hmm. here it was called the cootie catcher. So the construction, I feel like, is one thing. And then the name cootie catcher, you would have to go into where the word cootie came from. Mm -hmm. And the first recorded... Um, usage of cootie appeared in a World War I memoir hmm. uh, from 1918. And um, it said, of course, you know what the word cooties means. It's when you get near the trenches, you get a course in the natural history of bugs, lice, rats, and every kind of pest that has, that has ever been invented. Hmm. So that's the first recorded uh, hmm. use of the word cooties. And then also... Of course, everyone's like, ooh, you got the cooties. So Uh it's basically a term that little kids use. Usually you catch cooties from the opposite sex Uh on the playground or something. And you can get a vaccine for it where you say (laughs) circle, circle, dot, dot. Now you've got the cootie shot, Uh which means you're immune from it. Um, But the reason they call that little construction the cootie catcher is because like you can run it through someone's hair. And then you would draw like little black dots on the inside. And then it'd be like, oh, look, I caught your I caught your cooties in the cootie catcher. Huh. But have no idea why. Why it switched to being a fortune teller. Exactly. And why we just don't call them fortune tellers now. Well, so my kids call them fortune tellers. And they think it's oh. super weird that it's called a cootie catcher. Yeah. So hmm. like after I was like, so I did, those are basically the facts I found mm-hmm. about the word cootie and the construction of the cootie catcher. But there's like, I was like, but where did the leap from cootie catcher to fortune teller come? Yeah. Nothing, nothing could find nothing on that. Hmm. So, but the salt cellar was a real thing. Yeah. I'm about to fold one of those for myself today. I like any, anything to put my salt in. Mm-hmm. In <laughs> fact, I gave Esme her salt little container that she uses it's a, today. It's a, it's a solid salt cellar. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. Um, and the only other thing I wanted to know was the mention of the Beverly Hillbillies, mm. <laughs> which Classic. was was on TV a lot in 1991. Mm-hmm. Emily, have you ever seen that show? No. Oh, that might be a good Patreon episode. 
<laughs> it really might be a what the fuck moment for Emily. I feel. Yeah. I'm sure. It's basically a bunch of hillbillies who get rich and move to Beverly Hills. Because they strike oil. Mm-hmm. Black you, gold. Yeah. How did, this, how did the theme song go? I'm not singing the theme no, song. No, but no, but I just don't, I generally don't remember. But I remember the black gold part. Um, It's like a, it's a play on like born in a mountaintop of tennis. Oh, that's it's right. Like that's that, right. Yeah, it's like uh, made to Beverly you know, mm-hmm. pills that is. Yeah. And that, yeah. But I don't know all the words. Yeah. <laughs> that usually came on after or before the Andy, Andy Griffith show. Yeah. I think it was after Andy Griffith before yeah. Petticoat Junction. Yeah. Anywho. We sound like a million years old right now. But they- <laughs> We're only 43. <laughs> this was all in syndication. You know, you watched it too. Young, young Gen Xers. We know mm-hmm. you did. All right. Tally. Should I move to Tally's? Yes. Oh, no, candy, candy first. Candy first. Candy. Oh, Lots well, I mean, Claudia's candy was only ringdings, but Stacy's candy was ringdings, the chocolate bar, fudge, and the M&M's. Whew. Again, no white chocolate, no, no white chocolate. Barrels. All right. We got one sophisticated, one almond-shaped eyes, one shy, one health food. And Emily, I'm going to say I'm counting individualist as individual because that's clearly what she means. And it's the second definition in the dictionary. It's incorrect. After. Well, it's you can take it up with Merriam-Webster. <laughs> I'm just saying. What weirdest line did you all have? Oh, man. There were so many weird lines. Hold on. Mm-hmm. I'm going to flip my pages so I don't want to make a noise. Well, I had to. They both have to do with the hospitality industry. I liked that Becca and Charlotte uh, were naming their hotel where they were making their fudge the Grand Sparkle Glitter Hotel. And sparkle and glitter are hyphenated. Yes. That's so, a great name for a hotel. <laughs> Grand Sparkle Glitter Hotel. I love that one. And then I also, um, when um, Marianne is very excited about Stacy going to Sign of the Dove and the Russian Tea Room, and she starts quoting her guidebooks, and she says, Splendiferous Spreads. Yeah, that's. Oh, I I also had that one. I also think related to Anne's earlier point about Charlotte's like diagnosing her own illness, the moment when she just says, when she's talking about having arthritis, and she just says, "My back hurts because she's eight. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, what? <laughs> yeah, I know. I like all of Charlotte's self-diagnoses. It's like, yeah. So should we do the the hotel one? I like the hotel one. I think that's really good. Okay. Grand Sparkle Glitter Hotel. I mean, it's not really appropriate with emergency, but I think I like that about it. (laughs) That's that's fine with me. And? We'll go with it. Great. Yes. Let's do it. Okay. Grand Sparkle Hotel. Glitter Hotel. Grand Sparkle Glitter Glitter Hotel. Hotel. Uh, What should we pizza toast to? Mm. Oh, I like Stacey's like subtle shade at her guidance counselor who tries to be her friend. Mm. I don't know that that's worthy of a pizza toast, but I thought it was kind of funny. So I don't know why someone at school, for instance, my guidance counselor, who preferred to think of herself as my quote unquote friend, hadn't called my mom yet. That's so funny. Um, I just, you know, guidance counselors are much maligned in society and it's usually not earned. But I thought it was a funny, funny moment. I see see the work you're doing, guidance counselors. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Kids roll their eyes at them a lot. It's like an issue. Yeah. Damn. And they're no. jokes. They're like the they're the butt of jokes in a lot of pop culture stuff. That's true. Ten things I hate oh, about you. Oh, should we do something? We complained about yeah. We complained about the 
the McGill's at the beginning and then we didn't talk about it much. So I'm wondering if we should pizza toast the McGill's stop them hopefully in the future stopping being such asshole babies. Yeah. Um, okay. How about to being less, less shitty at asshole babies? To asshole babies. (laughs) Um, so the McGill's having a a more effective co-parenting strategy. Okay. Um, Pizza toast to the McGills being less shitty asshole babies. Here's to the McGills being less shitty asshole babies. <laughs> Pizza toast to that. Okay, this episode of Stuck in Stony Brook is now adjourned. <laughs> Thank you to Anna and Martin for everything. Stuck in Stony Brook is edited by Emily Crandall. Theme song written and recorded by Gary Schaller, performed by the band Kid Kit. You can follow us on Instagram at Stuck in Stony Brook or find us on our website, stuckinstonybrook.com. Need some books that we mentioned? Buy them from our bookshop and support both a local independent bookstore and your favorite series literature analysis podcast. Find us at bookshop.org slash shop slash stuckinstonybrook. Lastly, if you're feeling dibly generous and you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be super helpful. You're the best friends a girl could ask for.